0: Hello, and welcome to the Collapse Podcast. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we are going to be talking about Polaroid Part 3. And before we get into the meat of the episode, the first thing Matt and I really want to do is just thank everybody for their input. We know this has been a journey. This is just the first few episodes we've done. We appreciate all your feedback and reviews. Your emails, your comments to us in person have been great. We've taken the feedback, and we're definitely incorporating it end of the episodes. Another thing we'd like to let you listeners know is that we love questions. If you have a question about an episode or there's some details you would like more of on a topic within Polaroid or any of the episodes that we do, we have our email in the show notes. Please send us an email. We will either answer it back or we will answer it in the next episode. All right. Without further ado, we're going to do a little review here. So in the last episode, we saw the land camera come out, the different iterations of that, some other cameras like the Highland, and ultimately culminating in the XSX70 camera, and then the failure of the polar Vision, And that kind of leads us up to 1976. That's the two-sentence review <laughs> of <laughs> that last episode. It's short because we are going to kind of go back in time here when we start. So... We ended in 76. Polaroid's doing really well. And I have this little fact that doesn't really fit anywhere. I just wanted to toss it in there. Things were really, really well in the 60s and 70s. They were so well that bonuses were very common at Polaroid and large bonuses. They were so large and so plentiful that the Ford dealer across the street from Polaroid headquarters would coincide their promotions for cars with the bonus times. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. <laughs> Love it. Hey, they're, they're making it work. All right. So that fun fact aside, let's talk about what happens in 1976. The big lawsuit between Polaroid and Kodak starts here. So the way this episode is kind of going to be divvied up is we're going to go through the lawsuit from the beginning to the end. And then we're going to go back in time and then talk about everything that happens during that lawsuit. Because it's a 14-year time span. There's a lot of things that happen. But before we go into that, we're going to kind of talk about the history of other companies competing with Polaroid. Polaroid in the instant market, they really had carte blanche there. But there was a company called Berkey Photo in the early 70s that did start to compete with them. Uh, they've been making knockoff of Kodak cameras for the past 40 years, and they decided to start unit you know, one with Polaroid. And they started using film, which had this electronic flash. Polaroid felt that this was pretty inferior technology, and they actually didn't do anything about it. They made another one that was not considered backwater technology. Polaroid filed a lawsuit, and that went away. Kodak is not a small company. They are very large. They had a, in their wallet, they could pull out $1.6 billion in cash immediately. It's a big piggy bank, big war chest to have. So, Kodak is not going to back down nearly as easily. Now, when Kodak learned of the SX-70, at this point in time, they had about 80% of the U.S. photo market. And if you remember, they were making the negatives, like the film portion of the Polaroid film, as well as some parts for the camera. So then in 1968, when they went to Kodak and they showed the SX-70, they kind of... Of course, as one would expect, they started contract negotiations about helping making the camera. Kodak had a new CEO, Lois Ellers. He saw this and he demanded, that's a pretty strong word, uh, but he demanded that Kodak be allowed to offer an instant photography product of its own, uh, probably with some royalty payments there. Polaroid declined because they felt that due to Kodak's size, which in terms of just pure money numbers is about seven times the size of Polaroid, maybe eight at this time. So they're much larger. Polaroid was scared that due to Kodak's size and their reach, having 80% of the photographic market, that they would eventually crowd them out. And that was a valid fear because Kodak planned to crowd them out of the market. (laughs) So they made, I I would say is probably the smart choice and said, no, you can't do that. You can just help us make our own product. As a result of this, Kodak decided to completely cut them off. So we're not going to help you make this anymore. So as a result, if you remember in episode two, we also said that Polaroid made or they created some factories, and that was a result of this decision. They had to start making the negative films. Sure,
1: yeah. Mm. So quick question there then. What effect did this have on Kodak? Because they must not have needed the money that badly that they could just say, all right, just be vindictive about it and cut them off. Absolutely, they
0: projected that they would lose six billion dollars with this SX70. Wow! Okay. Kodak was scared with the launch of the SX70 because they saw how uh, awesome okay. and great it was. That that's how much they would lose. So they
1: were very—they mm-hmm. were scared.
0: I mean, you can have a big pocketbook, but that's six billion.
1: So they're saying money. They would rather take the loss of the pieces that they'd be selling for the production than the greater loss. Of the sale of the SX-70. Yes. Yeah. And uh, to their credit,
0: there was always the possibility that maybe Polaroid couldn't make the SX-70 without Kodak's help. Probably didn't know that necessarily. It it wasn't the case. Nonetheless, as soon as this kind of deal fell through, Kodak started research of their own. So they were shown in 1968. The SX-70 didn't come out until the 72. But during this time, Kodak is doing their own research. They pumped $94 million into a project. And when they saw the first pictures of that were produced by the SX-70, their own internal documents said the SX-70, Kodak's internal documents, was a masterpiece. And theirs looked like trash compared to theirs. <laughs> <laughs> so they took wow. the $94 million that they had invested and they just can the whole project Oh, that's how R&D doesn't get any more money when things like that happen (laughs) yes but you have to credit them they didn't say we're just going to launch it anyway and see what happens that's really difficult to do Nope, you're right I actually have to give them a lot of credit
1: they said our product stinks
0: (laughs) we can't really yeah
1: I mean they they didn't succumb to some cost fallacy so that that makes sense but it still sucks that they spent that much money (laughs) I know yeah.
0: But ultimately, they did come out with a product. It took seven years. About 1,400 people were on the project. And the final result was, quote, something different from Polaroid's instant pictures. But was it really mm-hmm. different enough? Because the the real issue is going to be getting around those patents that Polaroid had. But they ended up coming out with these cameras, very, very catchy names like the EK-4 and the EK-6. And they, had, they used this thing called PR-10 film. When they were released to the market, the Polaroid team, of course, bought some of these cameras, and they found them to be remarkably similar. They were so similar that reporters were calling it a Kodak Polaroid.
1: <laughs> That's not good.
0: That, yeah, not good at all. They did have a similar system, but it had technical differences, as it would definitely have to in order for them to really launch it. And they released the film in 1976. There were some differences as I said the rollers were not automatic it was a little more plasticky it felt a little bit cheaper uh, the pictures were a little more prone to fading however overall it was comparable to the polaroid pictures even though this came out and Land was furious and Polaroid is furious the following year in 1977 it's not as if Polaroid just stopped selling cameras because they had competition. They still sold like six million cameras in this 1977, the following year. However, it's still 1976 here in our story, and Kodak sued six days after the camera launched. Six days and 14 years later is how long this lawsuit takes to eventually disseminate through the courts. We are not going to cover year-by-year, play-by-play. I thought I'd be really smart, and I looked, actually found the court case, and that was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) If you've ever read through court decisions, it is lengthy and not an easy read, to say the least. So I'm just going to take you through the highlights, the cliff notes, the fun version. All right, so you can't just sue them just saying there was – patent infringement. They had to be very specific. So there were 10 claims that ultimately went to trial covering seven of the inventions. And as we said before, Kodak is huge and they have the cash to fight out this battle. And it's not that Polaroid is necessarily small. They have money too. It's just, it's going to be a lot of battles. Both companies really have a lot invested in this. So the way that a patent trial works is it looks at each infringement separately to determine if that individual patent was infringed upon. This really bothered Land. He felt that all of them combined worked together to create this masterpiece of a camera. And so looking at each individual piece, he felt was not truly understanding how they all work together. Nonetheless, that is my understanding of how a patent trial works, and this is how it went forward. So the trial also is looking at a question of intent. If Kodak's infringement was deemed willful or intentional, Polaroid could receive triple its damage claims. This is important. So what did Kodak do? They didn't just take the camera and try to copy it. They, of course, Kodak is saying they didn't copy the camera at all. And Polaroid is saying, yes, absolutely did copy Mm -hmm. the camera. No question. That's why they're in court. So what is Kodak doing to... Prove to the courts that they were indeed doing something different and not trying to infringe in the patents. The first thing they said that they did was they hired an outside counsel to look at the patents and look at the technology they had and tell them if they were infringing upon the patents. And if they were, they would change the design or find a work around. Okay. Polaroid fired back and said that they just cherry picked the material sent to its outside counsel so that they could just get the advice they wanted. All right. <laughs> uh, there was a note from a Kodak executive, and it like circled one of the patents, and then the note said something to the effect of, "This is going to cause us problems." <laughs> My guess is probably a little bit of both. I, if I had to guess, I would say that Kodak would definitely prefer to have a product that didn't infringe on any of the patents. However, maybe some,
1: maybe just push some of them through. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I forgot
1: right. uh, the the name for this, but there's a, there's a company I know they um I don't know if this is still true. they make a plasma cutter and they have the best one on the market because they essentially patented not only their own product but every every possible permutation they could think of any way you could create this thing um, oh, wow. so they like secured the patent for it and surrounding patents um, yeah, so. Smart. My tie-in here is that, you know, although that's a lot of work and it's expensive, Polaroid had many of these patents already that were unique, and it's hard for Kodak to make a camera that competes with Polaroids without getting close enough to those those patents. Yeah. Oh, uh,
0: Polaroid would agree with you.
1: <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think we know whose side I'm on here. Uh,
0: uh, yeah. Uh, Another thing that was just crazy was there were some people's opinions that Polaroid wouldn't sue Kodak because Land didn't like to go to court. Are you telling me that you are going to endanger the entire life and product of an entire company and they're not going to defend that with every outfit they have? If Kodak executives really thought that, I think they'd just be fired. (laughs) I mean, that's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, I don't want to go to court. But if someone is, if I have a business and my entire thing rests upon my one camera, you know, we're going to court. It's their lifeblood. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Anyway. So Land did end up going to court. You know, he had to testify. And he ended up breaking one of the golden rules of this kind of court case, which is don't demonstrate the product in the courtroom. Because if your product fails, you lose the case. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, there was an issue where Kodak said that if you cut a test photo, it wouldn't flatten out. So he did this in the courtroom, and he proved them wrong. He was correct. It's funny. There's all these little things that they went back and forth on that we are not going into details. Anyway, in 1986, the decision was handed down that seven of the Polaroid patents were upheld, and Kodak was, I'm going to quote here, enjoined and restrained. From without limitation by manufacturer, use of sale of PR10 film, and the two cameras, the EK4s and EK6 cameras. This this was not a slap on the wrist saying, just pay a fine, okay, Kodak, and you know we can move on. They essentially just ripped everything off the market. Mm, That's a (laughs) that hurts. That's a pretty big punishment. Yes, and I would say justifiably so. Mm -hmm. Polaroid won the court case. However, the courts were still deciding how much they were going to have to pay out to Polaroid. And this is a difficult question. Uh, Polaroid obviously thinks they deserve huge amounts of money. They said $4 billion in sales. That is a little extreme. Sure. (laughs) Uh, This number could potentially be true if Polaroid like was unable to sell any cameras at all during this time period, maybe. Uh, but that was not true. You saw they sold like 6 million cameras in 77, and they are still selling millions of cameras after that. And there was another – there were lots of considerations the court took into consideration. I'm just going to read one of them here. It sounds like they were pretty fair. For example, consumers that wanted a camera with a flash to take indoor pictures – they couldn't use a Polaroid, didn't have a flash, but the Kodak camera did. So any camera that was sold in an area where it was intended to use, it was bought because they figured out that it, they wanted to use the flash, they would not count that in the damages because Polaroid would never have made that sale in the first place. This mm-hmm. was their argument. That's kind of fair. If You can figure that out, yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Ultimately, Kodak paid out $909 million dollars. Still a pretty big payout. It's a big payout. Not the five point seven billion that Polaroid wanted, <laughs> which is like more than their. I mean, even you'll see in the future they have like an inflated price of three billion, so they want like almost two times the worth of their company <laughs> in a payout. Um, and Wall Street was expecting like one point five billion. I'm sure they can explain that somehow, but no. However, this is the biggest patent payout in history. Wow. There have been others that have been bigger, but they were overturned on appeal. So yeah, this is the actual, the biggest one paid out. Wow. Like I said, the case started in 1976 and ultimately ended in 1990. Well, it was a victory for Polaroid. It was a Pyrrhic one. And a Pyrrhic victory is a old term. It was a battle between the Greek and the Romans where... The Greeks ended up winning all these battles, but the Greek general said, "If we win many more of these battles, we are going to lose." And so it's been called a Pyrrhic victory ever since then, at least as far as we know. Hmm. That court battle dragged out for fourteen years, and the photo business was different when the case ended than when it began. The company's profits were not nearly as good as they were, and while the company thought instant photography was going to raise supreme, the new technology was emerging such as the digital camera and as we know the digital camera was invented in 1975 by Kodak by Steven Sasson and it was as large as a printer with like a little like a telescope on it. It, it it was big it took like a minute for the picture to come out and it looked pretty bad it, <laughs> you if you were not able to kind of look to see where the technology could go, you can absolutely see why people thought it may be a dead end. Mm -hmm. I guess you need to have a really good transformative leader to to see that. (laughs) Well, you know, when you spend 14 years
1: in court, the world passes you
0: by. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But Polaroid was not idle during those 14 years. Sure, you know, they absolutely had – an eye on that court case. And some have attributed this to kind of part of their downfall because, you know, well, maybe they were so distracted. I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm. It's not like the executives are going in every day to the, the court case. You know, they have a team of lawyers. And sure. I mean, it's a part of their day, but I I really don't think that I would maybe an influencing factor. But if it is, I would not say it's necessarily a large one. Mm mm-hmm. Although, I suppose if they ended up losing the case, you could definitely say that it was... Anyway, we digress into fantasy land. We're not going to do that. <laughs> so let's go back in time here. The court case is uh, just happening. Let's go back in time here to 1976. Actually, we're going to go a little bit further than that. We're going to start off in the 80s here and see what's happening while the court case is going on. The 80s is a new era. While land was involved in the court case... In terms of the everyday running of the company, he's starting to take a step back. If you remember that PoloVision didn't do so well ever since then, he kind of has been moving backwards and allowing others to kind of take more power. And he was they were kind of looking for a successor, and there was a gentleman named Bill McCune that ended up taking over the presidency. He did this in a pretty bold way, at least from the source that I was reading. He literally asked Land for the presidency. There were a few other high-profile executives that had already left, and the company, he figured that they didn't want any more leaving, making the stock price continue to drop with having all these executives leave. Land gave it some thought. He asked some other people, and they told him to give the presidency away to him. Wow. He got it. He was overall a pretty good choice. He was well liked by others. He had worked with Land for thirty six years. He had a very technical mind, though he did gain the presidency. Land, for the moment, and this is pretty short lived, was still the chairman and director of research. And this has got to be a tough pill to swallow. Land then had to ask McCune for permission to start a project. Ooh, yeah! yeah from someone who started the company to having to ask for permission—that's got to. It, it definitely led to tension, and it definitely did. Land wanted to create this another small camera in the 80s. He ended up telling McCune that he wanted to start this project, and McCune said no. So Land told him, "You either let me do it or I leave." And he said, "Okay, we'll see." (laughs) So Land left. No problem. Land left the company in 1982. Ultimately, because even though after they had the disagreement and Land kind of just went to the background, he was still at the company for another two years. But ultimately, in April of 1980, McCune took over the chairman seat as well, essentially making him the the head of the company. Land, he retired in 82, and he still, like I said, appeared in court. However, 1991 is when he passed away shortly after they won the court case. And he has a great legacy. He's the model on which future tech companies and create their business philosophy on, he not only changed the world that he lived in, but also the future of technological development in the 21st century. His legacy will continue to be felt for many decades to come, I'm sure. While Edwin Land is gone, his company must now decide how to move forward, and will Mr. McCune be up for the task? So, first problem, how do we fill in this leadership gap? From Edwin Lamb being gone. McCune stepped up. Let's see how he does. The second problem was the the decline of instant photography in this thing called film decay, which is essentially someone buys a camera, they buy a few packs, and they put the camera away and they never use it again. That's a problem considering most of their money is made off the film. So that was another problem they had to solve. They ended up trying to find a fix by building cheaper cameras, and just finding more buyers. Uh, and the most famous of these cameras is called the Pronto, with an exclamation point at the end, because that just shows you that it's fancy. <laughs> uh, but the, the most famous one is most definitely the, the one-step camera. Things were, they got a bump here. Things are going well. The cameras and the film sold. The strategy seemed to be working. If you remember, the company has those factories now. They're making the, the negatives and the cameras. Again, this has been attributed, and or the factories that Polaroid has has been attributed to their downfall. I'm going to take the neutral stance. If you are outsourcing all of your production, whether it's film and cameras, it's true, you don't necessarily have those high in house fixed expenses, but you are paying for them because the product that you're buying, because you're outsourcing it, is going to be higher. If you insource your manufacturing, those costs are going to be lower and you will make a greater profit on what you sell. So I don't I would not say that these factories that they made was necessarily a reason for their high cost and a reason for their downfall. I would put it as a rather neutral. Do you have any thoughts on that, Matt?
1: Yeah, so I was wondering, you know, if maybe they had created these factories from the ground up or if they'd bought them from somewhere else. I don't know if they made them from the ground up,
0: but they definitely modified whatever buildings or factories that they had. To okay, because this
1: was making me think, you know, a little bit about um, vertical integration, you know, where you uh, essentially purchase the means of uh, production and there, thereby, you know, you're reducing your costs. So, you know, I was thinking like if they already had these factories in place and they purchased them rather than building them, they can save on a little bit of that cost. And now, you know... Um, Kodak is no longer making these things, right? So now they can uh, reduce their costs and no longer be reliant on Kodak for that.
0: You could argue they didn't have much of a choice since Kodak was not going to manufacture their stuff anymore. And over time, unless they mismanaged it, I would imagine that they would ultimately save costs as they're making more money in the film as well as the the cameras that they make. Potentially, they could actually be higher quality because they have full control over how Mm. they're built. Or lower quality because they have full mm-hmm. control over how they're built. Just depends. Nonetheless, even though they are doing well, their market share started to fall. Between 1978 and 1982, they went from a 27% to a 17.4% market share. Now, do keep in mind that the 78 to 82, Kodak is still selling their cameras. There were some other things that contributed to these loss of sales. The... Advent of the one-hour kiosk came about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like like CBS, you know, you drop off the the films and you do your shopping, you come back and they're done. The magic of instant photography, of course, it's still faster. However, the comparison of waiting 60 minutes while you're doing something else versus having to wait a week or more, it really kind of cuts down the difference there. And So it started to kind of eat into their profits here. And what time period was this again? Early 80s. Mm -hmm. Another issue was Polaroids, they really could look very good. However, they are using, most people are using the cheaper cameras. So they didn't look as good as film pictures. And there was a real fear that Polaroid was starting to be seen as inferior product. To help with this, the company started to diversify. They chose to enter the video space with something called the Polaroid Videotapes. Very original name. (laughs) Uh, They also
1: had their own line of floppy disks in 85. I'm pretty sure I have some Polaroid VHS tapes in my basement somewhere. (laughs) I remember those. Yeah. Yeah. They got into that.
0: Didn't obviously take off all that well. Uh, They also used some of the money that they ended up getting from the, the settlement to move into other spaces, such as computerized... X-rays and tamper-proof auto licenses, which I actually thought was pretty cool. Uh, But nothing really made a difference in the bottom line. Uh, If as you can see with some of these other ventures they moved into, they're also shifting their corporate philosophy. You know, the land philosophy of don't do anything else that someone else is doing to let's just try some different things and slap (laughs) our name on it and see if it works. As we mentioned in the mid-70s, digital photography was created. And McCune did see the value of digital photography, and they did make some efforts to go into, into the space. For example, they partnered with Philips to make a sensor that could shoot a 1.2 megapixel image. Uh, but people at Polaroid were scared. They felt that they wouldn't make any money. We don't make money off the cameras. We make money off the film. There's no film to sell. What are we going to do? And that was a big scare. They also knew that there were competitors in this market you know, uh, Canon and hindsight uh, is 2020 because they didn't really th- probably think about this necessarily, but you make money off ink, you know, printer ink people still now, and you know, when you print off a picture, you use a printer and there's a lot of markup on that ink.
1: Mm-hmm. And nowadays they're always trying to get you on that ink subscription. So you're consistently paying for uh, ink for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: absolutely. Money forever. They did actually buy a company called Advanced Color Technology, but the image quality at the time of these printers were not great. So they did have that idea. They just didn't finish it to its completion, right? They did have a company. They specialized in printers. They saw it. They said, these just don't look great. They couldn't see what it could become. But you don't want to judge too harshly. They finished or they did end up buying a company called Advanced Color Technology, that would print pictures. The the quality wasn't great and the company didn't feel like pursuing it. Another lost opportunity there. Again, this is us looking back with 2020 hindsight, knowing that digital photography explodes. That wasn't necessarily the case. They don't know that film is still selling very well and digital photography looks bad.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So my father, you know, he worked for Kodak for about 25 years and, uh, I remember him telling me when, when the digital camera came out, you know, a lot of Kodak was essentially saying, uh, you know, we make so much money off of our printed photos. You know, why would we waste time, you know, going and developing this this digital camera that frankly just doesn't look good? And, you know, in hindsight, which we know, I mean, it's hard to blame them, right? Because it did look terrible. Um you know, you wonder like if they had done a parallel development, you know, and developed that film um, while they were, you know, uh, developing the digital camera, would things have gone differently? Would they have been able to sort of taper their sales from the film uh, and ramp up the digital camera? Hard to say, you know. And money that gets spent in one place. Um, isn't going to be allocated for another one, and they probably weren't thinking we want to spend R&D money on digital cameras right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that we are in the mid-80s, and McCune is retiring. However, he had a successor, McAllister Booth. Uh, we're going to refer to him as Mac. He came from production and manufacturing, and from all accounts, he was very skilled. He was loved because he had some very admirable traits. He believed in keeping up the employee wages, keeping them high, having high our, our research and development costs. He was also seen as fiscally responsible, and he was known as a good listener and willing to hear new and different ideas. On the opposite side, he didn't really have a vision for the company. He focused on what we now refer to as like a lean methodology. Let's just get costs down and improve what we have, efficiency. He also promoted some of his peers that he worked with made with manufacturing, which in and of itself isn't uh, great. However, he was kind of critiqued for this because the folks maybe weren't as creative or uh, as intelligent as they maybe needed to be during this critical time. Again, that's also hindsight. You know, they can look back and say that. Who knows if those that were in their place would have done any better. But his big new move was to release a line of cameras called Spectra. It was cool. It folded over just like the SX-70, and it sold relatively well. However, the company's still not coming out with anything new. The last new thing they really came out with outside Vision, I mean, in the camera space, was the SX-70, and that was like 20 years ago. They're just kind of rebanding the same thing over and over again. However, for the moment, it worked. Again, this is another change in philosophy, you know, Land would make a product the world was not prepared for while Mac asked the world what it wanted and then made it, which there's nothing wrong with that, of course. It's just the world didn't know they wanted a digital camera yet.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is the funny thing about consumers is that they're notorious for not really knowing what they want at all, right? So, you know, you have these focus groups. Um, it's pretty funny how they, they'll go into these focus groups and they'll say, I want, um, for instance, this feature on a car. And, uh, you know, we want it. we want a trunk that opens like this and we want, you know, uh, this many seats. And then when they actually go to purchase a vehicle, their behavior is opposite. You know, if they wanted five seats, they buy a three seat car. You know, it's very funny how um, people (laughs) know so little about sometimes about what they actually want.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And there is a big problem where like in focus groups for example like mcdonald's have a famous one where they came out was it like the arch burger where it went really well in focus groups and then it did very poorly in stores and part of their issue was the people in their focus groups were people that already liked mcdonald's a lot and so yeah they, they loved it but the average consumer is probably not someone that goes to mcdonald's every day and just loves mcdonald's per se you know yeah, they're not super fans. So, yeah, it's about also getting a representative group. However, Polaroid did make efforts to make a digital camera. Again, just like before, the images weren't great, the business people didn't think it would make any money, and the tech people didn't like the way the pictures looked. In fact, the vice president of manufacturing, Polaroid, would say, electronic imaging is a technology, not a business. Boy, did he eat those words.
1: (laughs) So a quick tangent I got to mention because you made me think of it with this. Um, I was watching a video recently, and I think it was um, it was like kind of like one of those sixty minute interviews where you know they got a couple uh, thought leaders, if you will, uh, sitting with the the interviewers, and they were talking about uh, videotapes. I think this was in the I don't know if it was in the eighties or the nineties, but they're talking about home video, and basically the the, the one of these thought leaders that was there said, you know, uh, I don't think that this video stuff is going to take off. I mean, in order to make a video, you have to have an idea. Uh, I mean, and if you don't have an idea, what are you going to make? What are you going to film? I mean, it was so funny. He was thinking of this as as if everybody who uh, was going to own one of these home video Recorders was going to be filming some kind of Hollywood movie, not thinking about the fact that they're probably just going to record their kid uh, having his birthday cake uh, on his first birthday. <laughs> you know, it was so funny. It's like we obviously know what happened uh, with videos and video cameras.
0: Yeah, that's pretty funny. Actually, I like that. You can even watch people open up random products that they get off Amazon. I mean, just. (laughs) Right. Yeah. How far Uh, we've come. uh, A few of the sources like to take the time here to hypothesize if land could have seen the digital change coming. Um, It's really a fool's errand. Who really knows? Uh, Maybe, maybe not, right? I mean, that's probably as good as you're going to get there. But this is what we do know. In 1988, Mac had a bigger problem taking up his time, which was Disney, uh, Ron Disney, from the, it is the Dis, that Disney family, uh, through their private equity company called Shamrock, was attempting to buy Polaroid. Mm, as Disney does. As Disney does. At this time, Polaroid was attractive. They were still bringing in lots of cash. They had a very little debt. That was kind of a philosophy of lands that has continued to come on over, and they had a potential, remember, we still haven't hit 1990 yet, so they had a potential big windfall of cash coming from their patent dispute. Inside the company, this takeover attempt is considered and looked at quite negatively. I would actually not necessarily say that. I mean, Roy Disney saw the potential in Polaroid. He felt that they had a great leader, a visionary to begin with with land, and then when he left, the company is starting to stagnate because the company started to stagnate uh, and he wanted to revitalize it. He felt that Polaroid is missing out on the digital revolution uh, because they're missing out on the digital re- revolution. And he wanted Polaroid was a household name and he wanted to capitalize on that. He also had this idea, which I quite like uh, where you would have a kiosk at every large amusement park where they would give you the camera to borrow it for the day. And then you buy the film packs. And hmm. at the end of the day, the amusement park, you return it.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty cool cool idea. Yeah, I that's
0: a pretty good idea. Yeah. Uh, Polaroid, as I said, it was not, well, maybe not the whole company, but the the leadership at the company was not a fan of this. They did not want to take over. Uh, it was a hard offer to pass up. At the time, Polaroid stock was trading about $31 a share, and at the highest, Disney offered $47 a share, which is a 51 premium 51% premium. Wow. That's a lot. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I mean, you know, it makes sense uh, that uh, they've been independent for so long. Takeovers are going to include, you know, uh, a lot of cultural changes, a lot of changes to the way you do things, uh, business processes, right? So, you know, I mean, I could totally understand the resistance to this. Yes. You know, not all takeovers are bad. No, that is true. You're right. Not all of them are.
0: Take the company North Face, for example, North Face is a, now a very large brand and very well known, but it had a lot of problems until the company, the VF Corporation, took it over, kind of restructured it and made it what it is today. So in that case, it was, you know, a positive. Now that's not to say that is what was going to happen with Polaroid, but it definitely had the potential in Disney. They had the capital to do what they needed to with the company, I would say. Nonetheless, Polaroid didn't want this, so a little bit before this takeover attempt occurred, Mac created an employee stock ownership plan. He believed that employees that bought into the company would become more productive and then more valuable for the company. Makes sense? This ended up being a boon for the company if your goal was to protect the company from a takeover, they actually increased the amount of stock offered to employees to a total of 15% of the total company's stock. This is important because where Polaroid was incorporated, which was Delaware, in order for a buyer to take control of a company without the board's approval, they need to buy 85% of the company. So they opened up 15% to the employees and then they offered some to an investment company in exchange for two loyal board seats which just translates to you are not going to sell to disney <laughs> right yeah. exactly uh, and it worked disney ended up stopping their attempt to take over the company and that was it this was expensive you know they couldn't just so you you could just create more shares, right, for employees to buy. But if you do that, then you start diluting the percentages that everybody controls. So Polaroid ended up buying the shares. They took out debt to do this, about $300 million, and then sold them you know, to the employees. So that kind of takes us through the 80s. Now let's go into the 90s. So the 90s was a new decade filled with new dangers. There are new technologies such as, like we talked about, the one-hour color film processing, single-use cameras, you know, like Kodak that's famous for the videotape recorders, which we ironically just also talked about anecdotally. And the first set of, quote-unquote, like, okay digital cameras got released (laughs) that didn't produce awful pictures. Uh, You know, people had more options than ever with how they recorded life, and Polaroid instead of being the instant camera company is just now one slice of that pie that's growing. So what do they do when they are starting to kind of struggle? They double down on film. Oh, yeah. They created the Captiva, which came to market in 92. It was a product of market research, which that's a good thing. Uh, and the the pictures would inject into this compartment in the back so that you could take multiple photos in quick succession, and they would just kind of pile up back there. Well, that's nice. Uh, and it kind of looked more like a conventional camera. But again, it's still... The same thing that they've been doing since the early 70s. Uh, they did have another project called Helios. This was a diff this was different. It was a dry film system. Its purpose was to create quick print X-rays in hospitals. This didn't really catch on. They spent a lot of money, a few hundred million dollars on this project. It didn't perform well. Uh, they say one reason why was because they kind of lacked some of the expertise and sales that some other medical companies at the time such as GE or Fujifilm, uh, had, which we still use their products today in healthcare, is an x-ray and imaging. Uh, between these projects, because uh, now, remember, the we're kind of in the early 90s now. So that big payday from Kodak, in which Kodak literally just pulled out their checkbook and just wrote a check, uh, has come into their bank account now. Um, but these projects, the hundreds of millions they spent on them, a lot of it has already been spent from that payday. And you do have to give Polaroid credit here to a certain degree. They took some of that patent money and they distributed it amongst their employees. I think that we might look at that and say, oh, they could have invested that. But I guarantee if you were an employee of Polaroid, you're like, that's the best way they could have used that money. <laughs> it's all perspective. In 1995, the company posted a loss of $140 million. They really are kind of starting to... I wouldn't say the circle in the drain quite yet but they're they're getting there. Uh, and Mac is about to retire and they needed a new CEO, someone who could pull them back from the brink, you know, revitalize their their company and their their photo business and maybe finally get them into the digital space.
1: It sounds kind of like a three-paragraph email from corporate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then most of it is just telling you why the person they picked is so amazing and going to change everything for the company. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. And they decided we need an outside hire, you know, someone to come on in and, and fix this company. So they found a gentleman named Gary Dick Millo, uh, His background, he revitalized the company Black & Decker. And you know them. They make power tools. So you watch. Uh, you think the power tool company's CEO is going to revitalize your technology business? Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I could see it if you know you understood consumer products to some extent, right? Oh,
0: I, absolutely. I mean, I'm making fun of them. <laughs> but uh, it's hard for me to imagine the CEO of Lowe's going in the beginning CEO of Facebook or Apple. I just, yeah, they're absolutely transformative skills. It doesn't mean that he would do a bad job, but... At a time when they're in a crisis, it just really, they're very different
1: markets. <laughs> no, right. That's a fair point. Yeah, it is a strange choice to make that that of all people you would yeah. choose, um, uh, you know, instead of looking for something that was maybe a little bit closer. But uh, again, in, they're in a crisis. Um, you probably are going to take what you can get, you know. I mean, I don't think there's too many... CEOs that have turned around photograph companies in the past, just floating around out there, right? I mean, I'm not exactly sure how good a job he's going to do, but. uh, Well, the company does go bankrupt. (laughs) That's that's true. That's true. I guess that's the thing about this podcast, right? We we always know the ending to the story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They all lose. That is the end of part three of polaroid and the next episode we are going to finish their story from 1995 to 2023 cool looking forward to it all right all right matt let's mosey on over to the next room and do our discussion sounds good
1: Hey everybody, Matt here. Uh, that's the end of the narrative portion of the podcast, but Joel and I are going to discuss for just a few minutes a couple of things. If you're just interested in the narrative portion of the podcast, uh, you can feel free to skip this part and wait for our next one to come out. But if you are interested in the discussion that we're going to have, uh, feel free to enjoy.
0: All right, Matt, let's just jump right in. The beginning of the episode, we're talking about the court case. You know, there is always going to be debate whether Kodak was intentionally illegally copying Polaroid's patents and then putting something out of the market, kind of based off what you listen to here, do you think that was actually the case?
1: So uh, I would say it's uh, it's tough. I would say I don't think that they fully intentionally tried to base everything off of them, but the caveat is that if you have a unique product on the market, right, and you you've got a, a corner on it, It's hard not to look at that and say, how can we do anything but copy that to some extent in order to compete, right? Um, So, I think they probably had an element of, if we're going to survive, we're going to have to try to make something as close as possible, uh, or else we're just going to get zero dollars. So, let's take the chance, right? Um, Now, that being said, there is probably also an element of, uh, let's copy what we can and see what we can get away with because hopefully no one's going to see it. Right? <laughs> they probably didn't exactly expect that they were going to get taken to court and have their whole, you know, each camera exploded, if you will, and looked at every single <laughs> part. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't know if it was fully intentional there. But um yeah,
0: my opinion is that they would probably prefer not to go to court. Right. I don't think their intention was to hamper Polaroid with, with a big lawsuit. I think in their world they would love to just get close enough but not so close that they were able or were infringing on their patents and then they were able to sell cameras. I think that the way it turned out they they were probably not actually happy. yes, Polaroid ended up going under, but I still I don't think that Kodak was happy with the ultimate result.
1: Yeah. I mean, court cases are expensive, even if you have the money, right? It's like one of those things. Why spend the money if you don't have to? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: So I think that's that. But this, then when we talk about the damages that they had to pay out, these are always really, I find entertaining because you know that in their investor meetings and their annual reports, they're just talking about how well their sales are doing. They're crushing it on the numbers. But then in court... They're Trying to say, well, we really don't sell that well. I mean, we can't pay out that much in damages because our sales oh, are right. Done that well. <laughs> so it's, it's always the, the catch 22 there. Yeah, and you see the same thing today when you're looking at antitrust cases and monopoly breakups, right? Oh, well, we, we only actually have like you know 10% of the market, and then in their meetings, they're like, you've got like 95%. Yeah, <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, Right. So a follow up question for you on that is Do you think that the, you know, you used the term in uh, Puric victory, right? In the, uh, mm-hmm. in, and during the narrative, do you think that the damages sustained in this court case were enough to uh, really deliver um, a blow to Polaroid that started their dissent, you know, or do you think that um, they, they experienced a loss, but it was more of a distraction that actually ended up hurting them rather than the price paid in court. My opinion,
0: and there are many out there, lot of other factors that are happening that mask the impact that the court case has. For example, land leaving is a huge blow to the company. Yes, the court case happens, yes they win, and it does drain resources, yet in the background or everything else that was going on during the court case Polaroid was not doing much. And I know some people say that the court case drained so much time, so many resources. I don't actually think that's true. That's why they hire a legal team. Yes, they would have to go sometimes, but I don't. And yes, the decision was always kind of looming on them. But I don't personally believe that it was as big of an impact on their downfall than some might believe, because if they had come out with another Smash product, the court case would have just been a big win. They would have got a nice windfall of money. They invested it in something else, and great. Just another checkmark on the success to the Polaroid story.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's really more like a background current among uh, amidst a, a series of other factors that were contributing to their overall downfall.
0: Yeah. Now, if Polaroid lost the case, they may have gone under a little bit sooner. Right. They would have had—I think Kodak would have just— turned up their marketing and efforts in that market up to 11 and just i think they just would have knocked polaroid mm-hmm. out and they were already weakened but that's not what happened so polaroid lives on for now for now as of right now and the and to be fair at the leaders at that time you know they are just looking forward hopefully at the next product that they're going to release so talking about their products You know, they release the revolutionary SX-70, which we talked about in the second episode. It's a really cool Mm -hmm. camera. Yeah. Uh, But just like the iPhone is really cool or the iPod, you need to keep coming out with new and innovative products. And they're just kind of rebranding the same thing. Yes, technology changes a little bit. They have new models. You know, they have little different quirks. But the thing is ultimately different Uh, it's just the same thing over and over you know just like coke right or buick commercials
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh it's right. yeah buick don't get me started on buick i mean i've probably said this before but uh you know this this will be the uh, this this will be the last chance i ever have to work at gm i guess but uh you know i mean if you're going to come out with a product that is doing pretty much what everybody else has been doing for a long time. And then uh, positioning it as brand new and unique. We're going to laugh a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Our cars now come with leather seats. (laughs) A third row and Bluetooth.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know who actually did a really great job uh, to kind of flip Mm. this? A company that. Did come out with something that was pretty much exactly the same as everybody else, but they had such a clever marketing was Dodge in the late 2000s. You remember their like uh, saxophone commercial and the, you know, one cubic foot glove box commercial? (laughs) (laughs) They just kind of spun it and they just owned it. And they were very funny. They were very clever. Uh, I do have to give a lot of credit for that. Yeah. And Polaroid actually was doing the same thing, they had some commercials with, uh, the head guy of mash but yeah that the one of the main characters in mash and it was very successful and you know polaroid would kind of bump up with these marketing but at the end of the day it was just the same thing they're not really moving the needle forward yeah
1: unfortunately pronto with an exclamation mark really wasn't cutting it <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah you, you can market a lot but at some point people end up holding the product and deciding for themselves whether they like it yeah And I think this is actually a shift in the company from we're a tech company. We're going to come out with new techie things to let's just sell film and cheap cameras. (laughs) So people will buy the film, not necessarily innovating to their credit. They are trying. If you remember, they tried to go into like the x-ray space. They tried going into like the VHS and different things like that. Mm -hmm. And nothing's just really sticking.
1: Nothing. I mean, I would like to point out. Because you did mention Coke earlier, right? And, um, you know, as you mentioned, uh, you know, Coke has always been the same, except for that one time that it wasn't, right? But uh, there is a difference between innovating on something because you need to and because you need to keep up with the market and innovating on something for the sake of innovation when what you're doing already is actually um, – working quite well. And I know this sort of flies in the face of what I've said in previous episodes about the best time to change is when things are going well, right? But Coke's formula, except again for new Coke, has not changed in a long, long time. And it's because they found something that works and it really doesn't need an adjustment. So uh, I'm not necessarily saying that Polaroid shouldn't have um, innovated, um, because I think they should have. It's just that the markets are different in that they're they're working on a camera that um, now competitors are coming out with something that's clearly better. That should be an indication to you that uh, you probably should do something different, right? If you no longer have that winning strategy. Whereas Coca-Cola, you know, they have what they have and they know they have it. And it's continuing to be successful year after year after year. Absolutely. And it's not Apple's. The Apple. It's not Coke.
0: Is not a tech Correct. company. There's always that person in business school that like, what kind of company is McDonald's? They're a real estate company. You know that famous, yeah, thing. yeah thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and yes, of course, you can go into the details, and they make a lot of money off the real estate and the franchise stuff. But uh, they're a burger company. Let's just <laughs> let's just put right. that out there. <laughs> All right. Um, not gonna be fancy here. Actually, I feel like the more fancy they get, the more skeptical you got to be of their argument. But anyway. Polaroid is a tech company. They really do need to keep innovating because they have competitors that are innovating. Coke is Coke, and people buy Coke because it's Coke. They don't want something else. They don't want competitors. I I like Coke, and I like Coke over its competitors, and I don't care what else comes out. I want to drink a Mm -hmm. Coke. It's a very different market.
1: Yeah, you can't just say... I mean, there are people that would say, like, I would like a Polaroid because I'm loyal to Polaroid, but those people are probably much, much... Uh, that group of people is much smaller, uh, because of, again, the type of good you're talking about.
0: Absolutely. And if you remember, they're having a problem that film decay, people are buying them, the camera, they're buying a few packs of film and then storing it. People are not holding on to the cameras Mm -hmm. or continuing to buy film. This is a problem Mm -hmm. and they're trying to solve it by just pumping more cameras into people that don't have them. Uh, But that ends at some point. There are diminishing returns. Right.
1: And I think we've talked, we may have talked about this before, but the uh, sort of like brand decay, if you, uh, I'm using the same word, but (laughs) when you suffer damage to your reputation because of, um, you know, a good like that, that isn't performing properly, you, it can take a very long time to restore that, uh, your name. And in Polaroid's case, it may have that recognition uh, of their name, the repair would have taken a lot longer than they had left to rebuild their business. I think specifically of like Ford, I think it was in the 80s that used recycled metal in a lot of their cars. I remember my mother said um, that, you know, like they would never buy another Ford again because they, you know, all they always rusted out. Right. Well, Ford fixed that problem, but not in the minds of some consumers. Um, so you know that that kind of thing is a is a hidden cost sometimes that you don't think about that there's a lingering a lingering cost to that loss of reputation,
0: yeah, uh, switching topics here, one of the things that Polaroid has done very well, and even though things are not necessarily going great, they have stuck by is they are keeping their employees at the forefront, keeping benefits good, they're trying to avoid layoffs I mean all right. Extremely successful because, you know, you companies start shrinking, you know, was, uh, through the 80s here, but they are trying very hard. And I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. That is something that modern business people talk a lot about, yet it's still a very hard thing to achieve. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's a hard thing to achieve, especially when we've shifted to a, you know, shareholders are right and growth at all costs kind of mindset, right? Um, You know, employees are one of the highest costs that you have. And when you're constantly thinking about growth, one of the easiest ways to cut back on those costs is to get rid of employees or to cut their benefits or to cut, uh, it, you know, uh, that we definitely live in a different era now in which um, priorities have shifted in these companies.
0: If you're not a starting player and you sit on the bench, you get the X. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Last Topic here. Let's talk about vertical integration. Like I said, there are a few sources that talk about this as being an issue for Polaroid and kind of brings around its downfall. I feel very much neutral or even feel the opposite. Vertical integration is not a bad thing. Yeah, you own the factories, you own the employees, but ultimately that should bring down costs if it's done well because if you're paying for those for a third party company, you're paying a premium mm-hmm. for that
1: um, I'm gonna ride the fence as well I know I'm sure probably listeners would want us to take a hard stance on one of these but I'm gonna ride the fence because if if that premium cost of paying Kodak to manufacture things is higher than maintaining it on your own right then yeah it makes sense you're going to save costs by by vertically integrating however if you're not selling the correct volume, at what point does supporting that factory and those employees who are in there become a greater cost than if you had just outsourced it and only paid those the you know, Kodak for what you needed at the time? Um, I think it's probably volume dependent to some extent. How, how well are your sales doing um, to, to get that benefit out of the vertical integration?
0: Absolutely. And actually, that is why they're saying it's a negative thing Mm -hmm. because their sales drop, right? And so they're not using the full capability, production capabilities of the factories. And yeah, so they are a big expense in that, from that line of thought. However, when they were originally built, it was fine. And on top of the fact, they didn't really have a choice. That's true. I mean, Kodak told them that they weren't going to make their parts anymore. So they were like, all right, well. Yeah. I mean,
1: it is hard to, you know, with, as you said there, the, they were doing fine when it happened, when they originally vertically integrated. So uh, it could be attributed to their downfall, but it's also at the same time, one of those things where how how exactly were you going to plan for that? If everything was going well um, and you thought, well, this is probably our best move to save costs. You weren't really necessarily planning on, you know, losing so many sales and then having that become a cost and a burden. Um, yeah. Yeah. We will see
0: what happens to Polaroid now. Obviously, we know what ultimately happens, but we will see how they get there and what we think of their strategies going forward mm-hmm. at the time, because that's that's really the key. I mean, you have to realize that the company, they don't know that it's going to go under, and we'll try to evaluate it from their perspective at that time. This is the bonus <laughs> discussion. Matt and I are going to talk about a quick leadership topic. We talk a lot about the company but not really kind of leadership or things relating to business in general. So we're just going to take a few minutes, just to do this little section, just to kind of see how it goes. Matt, today, I'm just going to read you a little quote, and I would like your opinion on it. Matt and I have fairly strong opinions about leadership, and you're going to learn what those are right now. I'm All ready, right, Matt. Here we go. Hit you're me ready? with it. Here's the quote. The secret to achieving extraordinary outcomes starts with your thinking. If you believe you can achieve an extraordinary outcome, you will figure it out and accomplish something more
1: than you ever thought was possible <laughs> <laughs>
0: i can't I can't not laugh at All right.
1: uh this is a one of those classic leadership sort of you know you 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 find a lot of these like. I don't know, you probably find it scattered on like an index card in Office Depot or something, you know, um, that you're supposed to buy and put on your desk. But it's like there is truth within that statement, um, but it's an incomplete statement. Break it down
0: to the steps because you and I, uh, I know that you and I agree on this. So,
1: so essentially they're saying, right, that achieving difficult things um, isn't as hard as you think if you shift your mindset. Uh, and if you believe that you can achieve it, then you can do anything, which, uh, the, so the part that is true about this is, um, if you're familiar with, uh, Carol Dweck, I think her name is, she was, uh, a professor who sort of promoted the idea of the growth mindset. And this is a buzzword nowadays, but it still holds true to it that if you believe that you can do something, that you are capable of change, not that it won't be difficult, that's the key there, not that there won't be difficulty, but that you are are capable of change and improvement, then you will improve. And those who believe that they will consistently fail or are unable to do things will do poorly. Um, And that's, that's pretty proven. And there is a way to shift your mindset to do that. The difference is a lot of what Carol Dweck talks about is that people can achieve great things through changing their mindset, but she never necessarily said that you could do anything. And you know, furthermore, this statement that you read does not take into account a significant number of other factors that can influence success, such as socioeconomic status. Um, there are uh, racial factors involved, as we know. There are um, there are educational factors involved. There's networking, which is actually a really big piece. Who do you know that can help you? Um, maybe you didn't have a small million-dollar loan to get your your business started. Uh, there's there's also in a lot of these leadership um, it, pieces of advice, survivorship bias. I made it. You should be able to too, right? You see this all the time. Um, this is a big one too with PhDs, um, and I'm not knocking PhDs because yeah, there's a value to it, and I. Um, appreciate the work that they do. But when you see um, people talk about PhD jobs, there are uh, many like professors, for instance, who will say, um, yeah, you'll do fine. I got a job. You will too, without, you know, a recognition of the fact that the market is uh, small and competitive for that kind of work, right? It's a similar thing here with this leadership. So, you know, uh, people will take issue with it because they, you know, it's... With what we're saying, because they're like, well, you're just knocking like a positive statement. But, you know, what we're knocking is an incomplete statement, something that doesn't fully represent the truth. Yeah,
0: We're not trying to necessarily knock down the whole thing. We're just trying to take the little nugget of truth that's in there and just talk about that truth and just brush away all the Mm -hmm. nonsense that's in there. Because at the end of the day, if you want to be a great leader, you need to understand some fundamental truths. And there are a lot of sayings out there and not all of them are good. And so hopefully as these episodes go by and we find different ones and we kind of talk about them, hopefully that what we are saying is not absolute truth either. It's just an opinion that we have in trying to just possibly tone down some of the uh, fanciful statements that are out there. Run it through our our little translator. Right. Yeah. And, put it in
1: and we're way. not in any way saying that we are like the expert leaders because leadership is a continual growth journey, right? You always are getting more responsibility and you're finding new ways to lead.
0: Oh, and they will absolutely tell you that you can be a leader in any <laughs> position. Leadership <laughs> is not defined by the title right. that you have.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, to me, it's true leadership is more about, um, uh, you know, being being truthful with people. I mean, the, the, it's not about saying small statements that obfuscate the the kernel of truth that you have in there, with sort of a, a, a haze of, of this this feeling, right? Yeah. The leadership is many things. Uh, today, we'll just say part of
0: being a good leader. That's right. <laughs> Tell the whole truth. I think we can stand on that. <laughs> yes. I think we can stand on that rock. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to our our little uh, bonus discussion. Maybe we'll come up with a better
1: name in the future. See you all the next episode. See ya.